Good morning. Biologists tell me that the cell has a cell wall and that somehow that cell wall there is an active process in which the cell takes that which is offered to it from the outside, the nutrients, and takes it into the cell. The nutrients are not forced in, pushed in, but there is actually energy used in taking into the cell that which the cell needs for its nutrients, and also there's energy used, I guess, in expelling. Those of you who understand that can correct me if I'm wrong on that. And it just struck me this morning that that's the analogy that we've been talking about this week with the heart. If we look at this inner circle, we dare not violate that without destroying it, without crushing it, without either abusing it, brainwashing it, or crushing it. Somehow, as teachers, we influence, we cry, we pray, we instruct, we cheer, we encourage, we help, we model, we give example, but we want that child, we don't want him to check his mind at the door when he comes in. We don't want her to check her feelings at the door when she comes in. We don't want her to check her will at the door when she comes in. We want that child to have a fully active affections, an engaging mind, an engaging will, and we want the children with their hearts, their caring, their wills, and their minds to apprehend, to grasp, to apply themselves to that which we present to them. I want to first this morning give you a few things to fill in on the bottom of the chart on the will yesterday, a few things to point out how the activities these are, I just picked out seven here, seven activities that happen at school, how these can serve to have a training effect on the will. And I'm going to talk the least amount about the mind because that's actually what mostly we talk about. And these other areas are so significant in undergirding all that happens in the mind. If these aren't in place, we don't get very far in training in uh, shaping the mind. But just a few thoughts here. Some of these should be obvious, but uh, these are uh, school virtues. Your outline says school virtues. A virtue is something you actually practice. It is possible to have wisdom like Solomon had, the wisest man who ever was, and yet not act on the wisdom you have. And so these virtues can have a training effect on the will when they're pursued for worthy motives. We actually want this list of seven things here are things that we want our children to have, to uh, live in, live by, to actually practice so that when they leave school and in school, they live by these things. And these are to be active processes done by the will, not just by constraint or intentions. Routines 
In order to fit the routines, to get somewhere on time, to follow the routines of life, you actually have to control, take control over the, the wishes, the feelings, and the choices that kind of come and go. There are many winds that blow. We would rather do this or rather do that. We have our druthers. But routines call us to take control of that and fit with a routine. Accuracy trains us to pay attention to detail. It's similar to truthfulness. When you're truthful, what you say and what you do matches what is. And so as we train them as they willingly apply themselves to be accurate, to get this right, they want their work, their expression to match what really is. And so when you train for accuracy and when, a, when this child adopts in his heart, the desire to be accurate and willingly tries to be accurate, that stands him in good stead for life. This is something to be trained in. And then we often use the term paying attention. Attention does cost us something. There is a price to pay. In order to pay attention, we need to turn away from distractions. We can only, there is the economist would say, there's a trade-off here, there's a opportunity cost. In order to pay attention, we need to say no to the 30 other things we could give attention to. And that ability is an ability the child needs to have and should adopt and willingly pay. Thank you, Brother Gerald, for giving us a Sample of silence here. Now, there's a time to be silent. Ecclesiastes 3 reminds us there's a time to be silent and a time to cheer. However, requiring times of silence, training a child for silence, not only allows them to hear, you actually hear with your inner ear and your inner eyes. There's an inner, an inner hearing here. And it restrains, the practicing silence restrains us from the impulse to say just anything that comes to our mind, whatever comes to our mind. It also restrains us from the impulse to be influenced by the presence of others, other students around you. You all know how it is. Sometimes all you need is a certain presence of others and the whole chemistry changes. But the child needs to be trained that even though that uh, the potential is there, even though the catalysts are there, he's going to keep that inner silence. It also helps him very much against other kinds of temptations. And then the discipline of what you could call industry or work, simply working, trains the child to a steady application to the work at hand to persevere until the time is called for break or until the job is done. And in order to keep working at something steadily, you need to have a constant denial of diversion. There are always other things could be done. You could always doodle or whisper or daydream or many other things. But the discipline of 
keeping steadily at the task at hand has a training effect on saying no to diversions. Obedience. All of us need to be trained to obey outside direction. When you're going down the road and the person is standing there with a water bottle in one hand and a sign in the other hand that says, stop. You need to be trained that even though you want to get there in time, you stop. This is an outside direction of this traffic director at a construction site. You might not feel like stopping. You don't know what's ahead. It's an irritation to you perhaps, but you're trained to accept this outside direction. And you obey Children need to learn to obey, not because they understand it or agree with it. They might, in fact, understand it. They might agree with it. That's fine if they do, but that's not the real test of obedience. And in school, we cannot allow time for the feeling of resistance to play out until the child eventually comes around to obey. Otherwise, the child would say, well, now, if this construction site, if they had told me 10 miles down the road that you're going to have to stop 10 miles down there, then I could have been in the mood by that time. And then when that sign went up, I'd have been ready to stop. But I mean, that sign just went right up and said stop, and I didn't feel like it, and so I kept going past because, I mean, I need about five minutes at least to get myself uh, in the mood. To I can't take immediate changes like this. And uh, if we don't train our children to change when we say change rather than waiting until you get your mood rearranged. So they need to learn to obey and obey cheerfully. And then the last one is order and that's simply this order controls our tendency to be careless with things, with work or with possessions. These are seven of the basic virtues that we all need in life. These are things that are integral to our school work, and these things are broad, significant, important, must be in place, and undergird all the teaching we do, math, science, history, and so on. Now, a few things you can jot down for the motivation. So why would a person want to pursue these things. Well, here are a few motives. What might motivate a person? And a few words you could jot down here regarding motivations that, that assist. After all, a person doesn't feel perhaps like doing some of these things. But success itself, simply having your curiosity satisfied gaining new knowledge and understanding. And then developing abilities and skills. When you're able to actually do something, when you're able to do, there is a, there is a joy in that. There's a joy in being able to juggle balls or to solve a problem in a new way. And when you have certain choices to make as to what you're going to do or maybe uh, what book you're going to read for a report or whatever. Occasionally, a success in what you have chosen does provide confidence. This is something that 
This time the teacher didn't tell me what I had to do, but gave me some choices. I chose this project, I chose this topic, and it turned out okay. It tends to develop some confidence. Another motivation is just simply the sense of what is right, either what is morally right or just conventionally right. This is the way we do things at this school or in this classroom. And there's value in adopting and doing these things. And the sense of duty, the voice of God in the conscience. That voice does speak, and that voice is a motivation. Also, a sense of fear. It has its place. A healthy fear not only encourages us to do right, but it also restrains us from doing wrong. I'm not talking about being afraid here, but uh, fear is a very healthy thing. It's what keeps us uh, driving carefully down the road. And we can, uh, there's a fear that keeps you in the middle of the road, keeps your eye on the road, and keeps you from texting while you drive. Approbation. Here's another word we should get out of our old vocabulary and dust off, a little like duty you don't hear much about. There's a, a difference between approval and approbation. Anybody can approve of what you do. It makes a big difference who does the approving. And if there is a warm official approval by the person who is authorized to approve of it, it makes a world of difference what you, as a teacher, or someone in authority when you say, well done, thou good and faithful student. Good job. And you can point out something that was done well. It does tend to make the student want to be worthy of that. If the teacher approves of me and I respect the teacher, I want to perform, I want to do in such a way that the teacher really can that I can, that the approval can be honest. And last of all is love, honor, and respect. Someone has said that teachers must have what they called generous love. Now, this is not personal buddy-buddy like you would have if you uh, visit the person in his or her home. This is a big topic, how as a teacher you have this open, generous love, but a, a generous love, and you need to believe in your students, you can do this. We need to believe for our students sometimes. You can do this, and respect them, honor them, trust in them. Let's move now to the last sheet on cultivating or shaping, shaping the mind. Your stomach is not synonymous with your feelings, even though when you feel, the stomach might churn or get knots, and it seems that some of these feelings are somehow very much associated with the bowels or the sympathetic nervous system. Your digestive system is not your feelings. And even though our will often expresses itself through the hand or the mouth, 
your hand is not, you're not looking at my will here. And neither is the mind the brain. If you open the top of the head and looked at the brain, you're not looking at the mind. The mind is something immaterial. It does dwell in this. It's not helpful to ask where it dwells. But as we think of shaping the mind here, we're not specifically thinking of shaping the brain, although there is a much interaction there. Shaping the mind. The teacher has a wonderful opportunity to influence the mind and, and in fact must influence the mind. And again, as we think of the, it does make a world of difference what goes in that mind it makes a world of difference what comes out of that mind and how that mind functions. Because as a man thinketh, thinketh, he does act out of his thoughts, he does feel out of his thoughts, and it is significant. So we, we as teachers can give, we can help, we can instruct, we can't enter that mind. We don't want to. Christ, God himself, does not make puppets out of us. It intrigues me how Jesus walked among his disciples. Jesus' disciples lived with him three years, and they still didn't get it sometimes. He did not do a mind transplant. He did not take his mind and put it in them. He taught he died for them, he, and at the end of three years, he said to Peter, uh, you're going to deny me that you ever knew me, and, and Peter did. And so this is a mystery. Now, as we think of the mind, the functioning of the mind, there is something dispassionate about the sheer functioning of the mind. There's something somewhat mechanical about the functioning of the mind. Now, we want the caring to influence that, and we want the intentions to influence that, and they do. But purely as we focus on the functionality of the mind for the purposes of looking at this, there's something procedural about this, and there's something about the content. The, the mind is, to some extent, functions in its own right. Now, let's look at our three scriptures. Whatsoever things are true, honest, and of good report, think on these things. The Lord knows very well that we are influenced by what we focus on. And we can get ourselves into ruts, into patterns. And we ourselves have patterns of feeling. The attitude that you had yesterday, you're very likely to have today and tomorrow and the next day unless something significant happens to change that attitude, unless you purposefully work at changing that attitude, you'll probably be in a rut. That's the negative way of looking at it. Or you could say you're committed. You've decided to follow Jesus in having the attitude he had, who humbled himself and so on. And so we do want our attitudes to be set. Jesus had an attitude, a facing, as he later in his life, he had his face set as though he were going to Jerusalem. And he purposed and he kept that attitude. And so there is a good part about being set, having a proper stance, but there's also 
a cautionary part about having a wrong one. But my point is here that there are patterns, and these patterns grow, and as we work with children, we have an opportunity to help influence the attitudes. There is also a pattern of behavior, a pattern of exercising the will, and now there's also a pattern of thinking. You've found yourself saying already, I don't see how he or she can think that way. There really are different ways of thinking, and the ways that we think do become part of us, and it becomes very, very difficult to change. And that's good if we have good ways of thinking. It's problematic if we have poor or sinful ways of thinking. It's fascinating that they've noted uh, physiologically in recent years that actually the brain does change its shape or there are actually neurological growth they can see that happen if a person focuses on a certain thing or does certain things in certain ways. We know very well that when you learn to ride bike or juggle, something happens in the brain. It's almost like the brain says, oh, you want me to do that? So I will develop in such a way that will enable you to function that way. And that's kind of scary when you realize that the opposite is also true. If we have thought patterns, thought processes that are not good, the brain says, oh, you want to think that way? All right, I will accommodate that. And you can think that way. The second scripture, there is a way that seems right. Now, this seems correct. And a person can dispassionately say, this is logical. This makes sense. You can never walk across the room. Now, you, you correct my thinking. You can never walk across the room in your life because to first get across the room, you need to go halfway across. And to finish that, you need to go another half and another half. And there's an infinite number of halves. And in your lifetime, you cannot do an infinite number of activities. And therefore, you can never walk across a room. Now, that sounds very logical. But I, I've walked across the room a number of times. Now, a person can think very dispassionately, very logically. And if you want a fascinating study of Scripture sometime, you go through Scripture and find reasonable things that people did. One of the most reasonable things that anyone did was Eve, when she was shown the apple, we'll call it. And there were three reasons why this made sense. It was a beautiful thing to look upon. Don't you like to see pretty fruit in the food line? And it was, it tasted good. It was desired to make one wise. And it was a good thing to eat. It made sense, perfect sense. It was reasonable. And therefore, she acted on reason. And you know the results. And so there is a way that seems logical, but it leads to death. So we need to give attention to our thinking patterns. And then we're told very clearly that we are not to be conformed to the world in our thinking, but there's a transformation. And this transformation does not change automatically when we give our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. This transformation, this inclination to think improperly, well, he pushed me, and therefore I push him. It's logical, it's natural, this kind of thinking this is a thought process. 
And a person can say it very reasonably. Well, when you ask a child, why did you hit him? Well, the child responds with, he hit me. And uh, I mean, that answers the question. And so the teacher's supposed to understand the logic. As I've said already, well, the lights are turned on also. Why didn't you hit him? And the child looks at the lights and says, you know, I don't make any connection. I don't see what you're talking about. And I, my reply is, I don't see any connection either, any more connection between him hitting you and you hitting him than the lights being turned on and you hitting him. They have nothing to do with each other. Now, he thinks it does, but that is a wrong thought pattern. And the thinking needs to change. And there are many opportunities for us to work on this. There are two major aspects to this mind on your outline. I list them as content and procedures, content and process. And so our mind somewhere is a place where our perceptions are housed, our thoughts, our imaginations, our memories, and there are patterns of thinking. So this would be the kind of the content. If you could open the mind up and look in there, you would see these thoughts sitting. Let me give you some examples from scripture. So Peter said one time, he said, I perceive, I understand now that God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't show any partiality. Peter never got that before. But this was a new, some new content for Peter to have after the Cornelius experience. And now if you looked in Peter's mind, you would see an understanding that God does not respect persons. Now, before that, maybe, his, maybe the content would have, would have been God looks with special favor upon the Jewish people or whatever. And he gained an awareness and an understanding. And so we walk around, all of us, all of you brought with you, in addition to bringing your attitudes with you this morning and bringing your wills, you're sitting there with a whole set of ideas. You know certain things about the world, about yourself. And that's just the way it is. And we also, all of us, have certain processes that we use in thinking. There are certain thought processes. And as teachers, we have two major tasks. One of these is to help children develop new understandings and new processes, but another major one is to correct false understandings and to correct wrong processes, to tweak them, to correct them. And of course, these are often interchanged. You might have asked someone already, where did you get that idea? How did you come to think such a thing? And we actually use the contents of our thoughts as raw material in, uh, to think with. And so it is significant what we hold in the mind, what we have in the mind. And as teachers, one of our major tasks is to, one of the essences of a teacher is to be able to identify, to perceive, to pick up on the thought processes of the student to see how you're thinking here and whether or not that is 
achieving the results you want than to help you. When you walk up to a student's desk, student has her hand raised and you walk up and this person has her question, I don't see how to do this. Well, now is when it calls for you to be a teacher. You need to quickly connect what's the problem, what's it asking for, what has this person done so far, what does the person understand, uh, why is it that this person isn't understanding, and you have to quickly come right to the point of the misunderstanding and then not give them the answer because that would cripple them, but help them in such a way, and you don't know what that is until the question is clarified, and it might be different for three different students. But right at that point of confusion, you help the person. Now, actually, it might call for helping them understand. It might also call for some encouragement because maybe the problem isn't that they don't know how. Maybe the problem isn't, is that they don't feel like it. Or maybe they simply want some of your attention. They need a little bit of warm affirmation from the teacher, and then they're good to go. And so as a teacher, you need to, in the moment, perceive what does this child need, and that's all part of teaching. People have concepts, have ideas that need to be straightened out. I am better than other people, for example. I'm better than other people. This is a very common fault. Now, that affects your feeling, but it also can be a thought. And you say, well, it just is that way. It's obvious that I'm better because da, 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 whatever. Well, because you can run faster or complete your math more quickly, that doesn't mean you're better. Jesus answered his disciples one time. They showed some faulty thinking, or the Pharisees, whoever it was that asked him. They said, who did sin that this man was born blind? He or his parents? There was an example of a thought process. They, they didn't have to be passionate about this. They just knew, okay, uh, we don't. Jesus knows all the answers. And so uh, is it this one or is it that one? And of course, Jesus responded with, sorry, you don't get it. He said, neither, neither, but that the glory of God. And then another time, and this is at the end after three years, they still have a faulty thought process or a faulty uh, idea. And so they say to Jesus, are, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Uh, these men didn't understand the kingdom after all those teachings, and they didn't understand the times, they didn't understand Jesus, and so their question reflected, and of course, Jesus understood the question, and a question that a student asks is often more than a question. It really reveals, it gives you a window into their mind, and as they ask questions, you get a chance to see into here, into the mind, and see how this person is thinking. And then you respond appropriately to answer the question. And here it's where, as teachers, we trust in the Holy Spirit, who is the real teacher, to guide us, to know whether we need more explanation, to know how to respond to this person, to help this person understand. So there are and we can't live without a set of understandings. And so we talk about the mind sometimes. There are patterns of thinking. There are, sometimes we call this a worldview. There are cultural patterns of thinking. Uh, 
ideas like progress, and uh, and there are also uh, there are, there's an Anabaptist mind. There's a way of thinking that we think, and then you break it down, and there are differences among thinking between Mennonites and Amish and Brethren and Southerners and Northerners and faith builder graduates and faith builder. Um, summer students, whatever. There are different sets of thinking, and we can't avoid that. Between families, there are. And uh, some of them are neither here nor there. I'm not saying this is good or bad. I'm pointing out that there are ways of thinking, and as teachers, we need to understand that. Now, moving on, the the content of the thinking is one thing. The process is something else. The process is the way you, how you go about making sense out of something, how, to, how this person tries to understand, not the ideas he already has, but how he goes about trying to make sense out of something new. Uh, how he goes about reasoning, how he decides. And so um, you see somebody uh, who's copied something from the book, and then you say, well now, why did you copy here? And he says, well, Sam said we can copy because the teachers use photocopiers all the time, so certainly we can copy uh, on on paper. Now that says, uh, okay, is that an idea or procedure, but it's kind of an an explanation. And so we need to, uh, we need to correct faulty, faulty thinking. And uh, let me just show you a few examples here. As teachers, we have many opportunities where we need to Here's a a practical one. This one happens all the time. Almost everybody falls into this trap. And so the the student makes this mistake. And you you look at the problem. And you see, by looking at that, that he does not understand. He does not understand what's going on with the, when he took, when he got this first answer that 2 squared equals 4, if in fact then he says 5 squared after 10 uh, equals 10, he really didn't get the correct answer on this first one because he went about it in the wrong way. And so as a teacher, when you see someone who made a mistake, why then you understand his thinking process and help him uncover his thinking process. And if his attitude is proper about learning, and if he's willing to learn, he's very likely to be open to accept this correction if he doesn't want to be told. And if he said, well, if I thought about that myself, I would do it. But because he, all right, he can understand. Here's another one. So if you're supposed to do some grammar and you find adjectives and nouns, so a slow car, slow is an adjective describing car, and slow is an adjective describing down, and you say, well, sorry, but you don't understand the difference here. And if a person calls both of them adjectives, slow modifying down and slow modifying car, that shows you how this person is thinking. And of course, sometimes you know as well as I, you can't figure out how they're thinking and it's best to not to try, you just uh, teach it. Um, so the question here, which thoughts need correction? And we don't have the, let me just give you some samples here and you can look down over them. 
And some of these are thought processes. Some get a little more subtle. Some are open to debate. Giving a wrong answer is a lie. A person might actually think that. You say, well, uh, and somebody with a sensitive conscience may come to you sometime saying, I'm sorry, I told you a lie yesterday. That answer was wrong. And so how do you correct the thinking that giving a wrong answer to a problem is not a lie? Now, of course, if you did it intentionally, that might be something different. Uh, it's okay to be cruel to an animal. We don't have time to unpack these. My purpose here is to show you uh, statements or windows into a mind, an expression or an idea that might come up among students. How are you going to respond to this? How, how do you correct the thinking? How do you defend the thinking? How do you identify? How do you uncover the error that's there? Uh, we, we have fun with this one sometimes, whether it's okay to be dishonest in a game. When you're on first base and the pitcher has the ball, and you really don't have any intentions at all of going to second base, but you act like you're going to. You run off a little bit to get a rise out of the, out of the pitcher. Is that deceit? Is that dishonesty? And questions like that can provoke some interesting discussion. Is it okay to use uh, irony? Is it okay to, to uh, use uh, a metaphor when you know very well that it's not true? These, these uh, subtle thinking patterns uh, take some careful, uh, some careful thought. And it does, it does take courage to do something that you might get in trouble for. So that can help. And you can very well think of a student defending this. It, uh, you want to develop some courage, do some wrong things sometimes, and then that will develop uh, uh, some strength for the future. And uh, what about manners? If you, don't, if you don't feel like doing it and you do it, you're being a hypocrite, because a hypocrite acts one thing and really does another. And so are good manners hypocrisy or not? Well. I'm simply giving you some examples there to show that there are fault patterns that can be uncovered. And there are many, many opportunities throughout the school curriculum, across the curriculum, for you to enter into these, uh, these issues of the mind. Now, shaping, I simply made a little outline at the bottom here. Some of it is, is uh, for it to look balanced. We do teach for understanding, and this is mostly what we do in school. We provide content, and we connect to the known, and we help them build concepts. One of the major metaphors you can use for helping children build concepts is to think of a puzzle or a box of Legos. When you dump the, the Legos out on the floor, you've got them, but you really don't have an object. And a major task of the teacher is to help the child assemble his uh, facts into concepts. And that's uh, typical work. And we have to help the child to conceive these things in his own mind. I'd like to go down to number three at the bottom, teach some ways of thinking. There are different ways of thinking that are valid and are needed throughout life, and we need to, especially as the children get older, now as they get older we might name these, as they get younger we might not name them, but we still use them. 
As in Ecclesiastes, there is a time to, for all things. There is a time to use common sense, and there's a time when common sense, the ends thereof, are the ways of death. There's a way that seems right. And so, out of personal experience, well, if you expect different results when you do the same thing all the time, when you repeat the same thing, you're not using common sense. If you want something different, you usually have to use, do something different. So, let your experience help you. Sometimes we simply need to use personal experience. Now, logic and reasoning, many times, much of our school work involves somewhat of a type of scientific thinking where you are reasonable and you use inductive reasoning and deductive reasoning and critical thinking and you see clearly and judge by a standard. But there's a time to lay that down and believe the authorities. When you read the Word of God and the Lord speaks, we obey. And we don't say, well, when this makes sense to me, I will obey it. When you think about something scientifically or uh, using your reason, you think through it, and if it makes good sense, of course, reason is put at the top there, reason kind of rules over, and when it makes sense to my mind, then I will do it. But there's a time when you lay that down and you believe the authority, whether that authority is uh, a teacher, uh, in some cases, or especially the Lord. And when you believe in authority, uh, the key there in C is that there's a time for you to believe the person. A person says, trust me. You may not understand this. You may not get this yet, but trust me. Do it. And there's, there's a time students cannot uh, understand the value of doing some things until they do what they're told to do for a while. And then, it, and then looking at uh, E, learning through tradition, there are some things you can only learn by living yourself into it. Job said, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now I know. There are some things there is no way to understand without living through it. And you, you live your way into it. And so there are some things that, that it's appropriate to learn that way. There are, of course, other things we should not do. And then there's a time to follow that inner voice. There's a time when reason says, this makes sense. The authorities might even say, sounds good to me. But there's just this little nagging feeling inside that I'm not sure I should do it. And there's a time to, to follow that. And so, and then there are, I don't have this on the list, but there are conventions. That is, there are ways of doing things that we do. And there are ways of thinking that the group thinks this way, and sometimes it's appropriate to follow that, other times it is not. My point here under number three is that along the way, and especially with older children, you want to point out that you don't park on one of these and expect to live all your life out of that one way of thinking. There's a time to follow that inner voice or follow or believe someone when you don't understand, and the understanding might come later. And then, as you go through life, it makes a difference which ones of these ways of thinking you use, depending on what the task is. So, daily tasks, daily routines, many times we use common sense, we use logic, earning a livelihood, being the butcher, baker, candlestick maker, many times we, we use the uh, logic and reasoning and apply common sense Interpersonal relationships, there 
uh, the scientific method doesn't work nearly so much as, uh, as uh, following other people's example and receiving instruction. And when it comes to eternal consequences, we better get it right. And we do not trust in our own reason or what makes sense or personal experience. Somehow we need the affirmation of significant people and we need the voice of God when we do things that have eternal consequence. As your children walk in the classroom in a few weeks, they're going to bring their thoughts with them. They're going to bring fuzzy thoughts. They're going to bring warped thoughts. They're going to bring empty thoughts. And you're going to have opportunity to help them develop understanding, correct some thinking. And it's a fun task. It's a challenge. May the Lord give you grace to shape that thinking. And as you have your own thoughts in order, your students may very well pick up your ideas and your thoughts. So let's take heed to our own ways also. Thank you. For more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit the docforlearning.org.